Hello to all our listeners. Welcome to this edition of Coffee and Conversation, Workplace Wisdom Unleashed. This is the 2020 Parallax Partnerships podcast that we intend to run as a series of conversations entertaining experienced senior business leaders and influencers in the leadership sphere over a cup of coffee, a bicky and a chat. For this episode, Sarah will be your guide. So, over to her. Hello, I'm Sarah and today I'm in conversation with Namir Hassan, CEO of Zaluna, a Norwegian biotech company. And the theme of this month's episode centres on the notion of leader as servant. And we will be discussing Namir's very personal experiences of bringing many threads of ancient wisdom to bear in a very pragmatic and modern leadership practice. So, let's dive straight in and hear from Namia. So, welcome Namia to Coffee and Conversations, Leadership Wisdom Unleashed. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. It's a great You're most to be welcome. Here. I'm really looking forward to today. You and I have shared many fascinating conversations about leadership, so I know there's a wealth of really fascinating stuff coming our way. But before we get into that, perhaps you could just introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So I'm Namir Hassan. I am a CEO of a small Norwegian biotech company called Zaluna uh, that aim to transform patients' lives through what are called cell therapies. Uh, I've been there since 2018. Um, Prior to that, or I've been trained as a T-cell immunologist, so I've been fascinated by science most of my life, uh, and I've also been fascinated by trying to apply science to treat patients and, and help them live longer with better quality of life. Hmm. And, and as I said, we've had a lot of discussions about leadership, and I know that people and culture and leadership are very important to you. And I really wanted us to try and get beneath the surface and find out where your inspiration and motivation and and indeed your philosophy arises around that. Mm. So maybe you could try and take us to the heart of it. And what is the very basis of how you approach leadership and, and where did that come from? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question, and um, as you do very well, I've had many interesting a question from you. Um, I think, in essence, it the core of it is service. It's the desire to serve, uh, the desire to serve uh, the fellow human, um, the age-old wisdom of treating others uh, like you would like to be treated. And when I think deeply about where that comes from, that desire to serve, that desire to help. I think it's uh, rooted in a number of things. Uh, My religious background and many of the traditions teach service. Many of the philosophers through time talk about serving humanity. Many of the poets speak poetically about service and now the scientists have quantified the benefits of service. So for me it's been rooted in my religious beliefs, it's been rooted in an innate inclination to serve uh, and, and that's how I would reason my desire to move into a field that tries to serve through science. Uh, 
So at the core is service. And then what springs forth from service is how does one then apply themselves in order to best serve those that are around them. And I think leadership as the uh, leadership student uh, uh, puts it Simon Sinek, leadership is more about taking care of people in your charge rather than being in charge. And I think that to me really resonates. Um, and so ultimately it's how can one serve best? It's a beautiful way of putting it and it really in those instances, when you're able to leave from that place, of course, you are stepping beyond your own ego and your own needs and your energy becomes orientated towards the needs of the other. But you mentioned a little bit about, I love the way, by the way, that you, you're fusing um, the kind of the, the scientific side with mm. the sages of mm. old. Mm. Um, and maybe actually you could just tease out from both of those um, doctrines, maybe? <laughs> What's at the core that interests you about what science is saying about service and leadership? And maybe some of your favourite mm. um, uh, sages who have influenced you about what they've had to say about yeah. service and leadership. Yeah. So I think it's, it's become quite, quite clear now through um, scientific research, through quantification of brain activity, that actually serving others is probably the most enduring way of inspiring happiness. And ultimately, in the end, everyone desires happiness. And, and so I think that the tradition of, and the traditional teachings of serving others had in some ways recognized this, and now we're seeing through science, we have been able to quantify this. And, and I think the leadership from a position of service requires a number of virtues. And again, those virtues are traditionally talked about through religious teachings. They're talked about through philosophical teachings, poetic teachings. And we know now that in order to lead and in order to actually unleash the potential of organizations, there are certain uh, traits that are necessary, those traits being authenticity, creating a space where everyone can be authentic. And can you, can you just describe what you mean by authentic? That's a very good question. I would link authenticity with the virtue of courage. Courage comes from a Latin root word, core, which means of the heart. Authenticity requires one to act according to his heart, in alignment with their heart. So being, showing up as themselves, as their heart is on that day. And so authenticity is the ability to be open and complete, to act according to one's heart and in alignment with one's heart, and therefore requires courage by definition. So that's a, 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 one of the cardinal virtues and that's one of the uh, traits that have emerged now in uh, organizational studies that have been shown to be critical to unleashing potential. Psychological safety is another term that we hear and know about that's important to enable organizations to flourish. Psychological safety requires vulnerability. Vulnerability requires courage. 
And so these virtues are, are, are crucial to create a, an organization that can, that can really become high performing, can really become a place of fulfillment for people. And, and in addition to some of those traits, self-management, which is another uh, term that is used, which essentially is distributed leadership, requires leaders to let go. Letting go is linked to ego. Ego is linked to humility, a, another very important virtue, talked about many a time through the age-old traditions. And, and diminishing and minimizing ego through humility and through practices that enable one to be humble and enable one to diminish the ego, again will enable unleashing of that uh, higher level of leadership, as, I, as far as I see it. So perhaps we could come back to some of those, uh, to explore some of those practices and how you experientially have brought this to life for yourself. But before we do that, I'd love mm. to just rewind slightly and talk mm. about those three amazing words, courage, authenticity, and vulnerability. Now they're mm. powerful words, mm. but I think they're also quite scary for mm. a lot of people, mm. particularly the idea of being vulnerable mm. and, um, and maybe being authentic. When being authentic, i.e. being true to your heart, is going to go against the grain of, of what's happening around you or what people might expect or want of you. So maybe you can say a few more words about your experiences, about bringing vulnerability and authenticity actually into practice, either your own personal experiences, i.e. things that have really resonated for you or, or what you've noticed in others and in cultures mm. about how those those virtues actually work and how we can bring more of them into mm. the workplace yeah that's a, I, I, that's a great question i i tend to borrow from traditional teachings and tend to borrow from um, philosophical teachings and if you look at um, certain uh, traditions and practices such as those of the Stoics. So Stoicism, uh, inspired by Zeno in the third century. There are, the, the, the core practices there are around courage and authenticity in the context of adversity. And many a time one is, one finds it extremely challenging to be authentic and vulnerable particularly in the context of adversity. And so some of the, the practices that they have adopted in order to enable them to behave in this way are practices whereby they um, put it in their minds that they contemplate on events before they occur. And they reflect on the possibility, all possibilities of what can happen in a certain situation. And so they take the surprise out of a situation. And when they take the surprise out of the situation, events that occur around them are not events that can disturb them because they have taken the surprise and the unexpectedness out of it. 
So that requires that you, you do reflect and you create time to reflect ahead of things happening. And as we all know, life in 21st century corporates is going about a million miles an hour. So how do you do that? How, how, would you, how do you do that personally? How have you perhaps helped other people to be able to do that? So one of the, the habits that I try to adopt routinely is waking up in the morning and, and reflecting on the possibilities that may emerge in the day and thinking that there are many possibilities uh, and encounters that may occur, that may be um, selfish encounters, there may be uh, ill will, uh, there may be a number of uh, encounters that would be deemed quite negative during the day and expecting that to happen. So habitualizing the possibility of this occurring during the day and habitualizing the possibility of um, certain events occurring. And what that does is that it takes those events outside of one's realm of control. And when that happens, then one has the, the reserve and the will to handle and deal with those, deal, deal with those events. And so it's habitualizing and, and practicing on a daily basis contemplation of events before they occur. And one event that was momentous for me personally recently is the loss of my father a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And I put this into practice whereby I had contemplated before it occurred the loss of my father. And of course, loss is a deep, deep penetrating feeling that occurs or inspires a, a feeling that is extremely weighty. And my father being my wisest counsel and my strongest ally, it was an enormously momentous occasion. But going through habitually the possibility of losing my father was, um, for me, a practice that had helped um, to deal with the aftermath. Mm. Uh, and so contemplating events before they occur is, is one practice that I that mm -hmm. like to, to adopt. Mm. And, it's not some, and it's something that was inspired by events also um, professionally where many an unexpected event had occurred and I had a sense of overwhelm as a consequence. So a couple of incidents where uh, my career was progressing and rapidly progressing and I suddenly found myself with greater and greater responsibility in greater and greater complexity with greater and greater uncertainty and felt a sense of overwhelm. There hadn't been events that I had expected. Mm. And of course, overwhelm is something that many, many, many people listening to this will be able to um, relate to. It's, it's almost endemic in many yeah. ways, it's senior levels. So, so in terms of managing that overwhelm, this was also about creating space for yourself and, and what? What, how did you manage that? It's, it, it, for me, it was about reserve. It was about um, filling the reservoir inside in order to have the capacity and the will to manage 
the activities. And so I realized clearly about myself that there were certain elements that, are, that were necessary for me to maintain a level of reserve yes. in order to manage my life. Um, and so those elements were that busyness was clearly something for me that I wanted and needed to manage and, and creating some space during my schedule was critical for me to maintain a reserve. And again, borrowing from Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, um, 19th century philosopher, who talks about busyness. He's considered one of the first existentialists. And he says, busyness, how ridiculous is busyness to be swift in one's food and work? What, I wonder, do these people get done? And he was talking about 19th century Denmark. And he, was, he related busyness, actually, to sloth, which you could see as on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But for him, busyness was a type of distractibility so that the mind isn't fully engaged. And that's an interesting way of thinking about it. But then creating space and time out of the busy schedule in order to center oneself is, has been very important and has been an habitual practice. And, and so this this idea that each of us each of us as individuals has a capacity and, and actually my experience in working with lots of different people is people have different capacities mm -hmm. but the point you're making there is to, to to learn what that capacity is and then to make sure that you work within it or yeah. to or to even try and increase it yeah. by engaging in regular practices, and they will vary, I guess, from person to person. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it, it all depends on what practices can maintain and increase that reserve for each individual. Um, and as you say, um, the capacities will be different, but they could increase as one goes through certain practices over a period of time. For me, those practices must include during every day, must include some time to exercise, must include some time to pray. For others it may be meditation. Must include a time for learning. Learning for me is an inspirational, is an inspiring act which provides energy, uh, provides creativity, provides an opportunity to think differently. Mm. Um, so those are some of the practice that are critical for me to maintain a reserve. And I see the difference when I don't. I was just going to ask you, are there times where you, 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 you don't Absolutely. do those practices or, or you know, you, you start, and, and what do you notice? And what do you do about it? Absolutely, I notice, I notice a, a, a lower reserve. I notice a lower level of capacity. I notice a sense of overwhelm potentially emerging. I notice an inability to act to the best of myself. I notice a, uh, a lacking ability to make clear judgments. Um, I notice it profoundly. Very interesting. Mm. Now, I, I, again, I, I kind of want to roll back our conversation, having explored that particular facet, to talk about um, vulnerability in a little bit more detail and psychological safety. Um, 
as I said, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who find the idea of vulnerability terrifying. Maybe you could start by defining what you mean by vulnerability and then maybe why you think it's so important in, in leadership. I think for me, vulnerability is um, being exposing elements about yourself that you may feel could be seen as inadequacies. Um, and that may be different from one person to another. And it may also be different from one context to another. And so I think for me, vulnerability probably has a definition along those lines. And so, um, as I was explaining uh, a couple of uh, occasions during my career where I had a sense of overwhelm, I also had, in the lead up to those, a sense of a superhero mentality, the ability to contend with anything that life throws at me. And of course, as life began to be more and more complex, uh, work began to be more and more complex. I have three young children, they were younger then. One begins to understand their limitations and to vividly almost be able to touch their limitations. And so to, to talk about their limitations could be seen as being a vulnerable topic. And, but I felt and understood and went through a process to understand the power of talking about one's vulnerabilities. And at that point, my vulnerability was overwhelm. It was the feeling of an inability to handle everything that was emerging in my life. And, and just for a moment, if I ask, you know, what meaning did you make of that? Why was that a painful thing for you to potentially have to expose yourself over? Because in the lead up to, to that, one has perhaps a naive sensation of the ability to handle anything. And so for me, moving from that to explaining and talking about my perhaps inability in that time or, in, or feeling of inability to handle the uh, elements that were emerging in my life felt as if I was exposing myself and was being vulnerable. Yeah, so what has been your experience of act of doing that of actually sharing those vulnerabilities can you think of examples that kind of bring that to life for us i think what one finds is that it begins to create um it tends to license others to do the same and when you have a cascade and a uh, a community or a group that are then willing to share, then what emerges from that becomes so much more powerful for the individuals and for the group. And so when I had begun to talk about the sense of overwhelm, I began to see others opening up and what then that what that then led to was powerful, extremely powerful conversations, and a consequence of that was extremely powerful connections. 
And in the end, it's those deeper connections that, if facilitated, really bring groups together to perform the most powerful things in life. So I guess in an another way also of saying what you're saying is that when we are open enough to share our deepest fears, they no longer have power over us. So one of the things I notice in working with people is, is the trying to maintain a mask of being perfect or, you know, uh, you know, being successful or whatever it is we're trying to be. Yeah. Um, when, it's, when behind that mask there's that deep fear, that is an incredibly draining position to be in, but it's also really hamstrings us as well because we have to then pretend to be somebody. Mm. And I think what you're saying is when we can let that go and when we can let that mask down and we can just turn up and, and be honest and real, we find that people around us feel exactly the same way. Yeah. And so as a leader, you're giving permission for other people to, in many ways, learn a way to manage their fear. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's letting go of that. It's dissolving that barrier. It's uh, unleashing uh, yourself to, again, uh, be uh, courageous to talk about the vulnerabilities uh, and, and to align yourself with your heart where at that moment or in that period it's, it feels a sense of overwhelm. Um, and what that does is, is that creates uh, a cascade. It really does. And clearly you've had these conversations, you've had these conversations within teams and groups, and maybe you could give us a flavour of, of what actually came out of those conversations. What came out of the woodwork when you, were when you were able to lead from that place of vulnerability and it gave permission for other people to do so? I think what came out was... Um, the, the common element was, was fear. The co common element was fear around um, exposing vulnerability, but then relief, <laughs> a sense of relief, a sense of a dissolution of this weight that people were carrying. And then when, that, when one lets go of that weight, it allows and catalyzes that energy to be channeled elsewhere. And so, um, and there were some common fears, actually, mm -hmm. many common fears, mm. common fears um, around uh, exposing vulnerability, which may be linked to self-esteem. Uh, but what we had seen was that in doing that, the energy was then, the, the, the levels of energy had risen. And you could see that the reserve in people had risen and their ability to manage and to deal with challenges then rise. So there's a lot of gains to be had there from an organisation's point of view, let alone the fact that you're dealing now with happier, more balanced, healthy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's another aspect and, and, and again I this psychological safety, mm. uh, we, we know increasingly about the impact and the role of creating psychological safety. And I guess mm. this, this all plays into that from mm. a team perspective. Yeah. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. 
Yes, we, we do know the impact of psychological safety. It's, it's something that's now documented as, um, as being a, a critical part, critical component for high-performance teams. Um, it's something that uh, Google had looked at in, in reviewing uh, the teams uh, that they had, hundreds, uh, almost hundreds of teams that they looked, looked at, and one of the common traits was psychological safety. And others have documented, documented it also. And it's very much around trust and connection. Uh, and it's very much around um, being vulnerable, uh, it's very much around creating uh, a, a situation where uh, people are able to challenge, people are, people are able to speak their mind and be courageous uh, and be aligned with their heart. Uh, and what, what springs forth from that is higher creativity, innovation, and in, and in science and in medical research, that's crucial. What springs forth from that is fulfillment and, as a consequence, higher performance. And I suppose um, looking at the teams that you have worked with and managed, what do you think is the most important thing you have done as a leader to unleash? Of all the things we've talked about today, if there's one thing that you would advise somebody to do to start to unleash that potential from their team, what would it be? You know, I think the irony in some ways here is if you, if you look at where um, the most powerful leaders have really had the greatest impact they have worked so much on themselves. And I think the irony here is that in order to unleash that potential, again, borrowing from tradition, the first step is to work on yourself. Mm. And I think working on yourself, for me, means working on the ability to be centered and to be balanced. And there are practices associated with that. But when one is centered and balanced, then the people in their charge will experience and see that. Their response to those people around them will come from a place of balance. And so for me, that is the most important element. And to center requires certain practices. The practices that I have are um, a few. I draw on, um, again, uh, tradition, philosophy. To be centered for me is to, to remember in very, very challenging times that when one's back is against the wall, the most creative, the most momentous occasions in history have occurred. It's to remember that one shouldn't feel that they have control of their path. So when events occur, that they may be out of their control. As the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu talks about, way called way is not way. It's almost impossible to try to predict one's way. So to be centered is to have certain practices, 
habitually to allow one to to respond and not to react. Yes. To have this sense of equanimity. And I think as a leader, when one works on themselves and reaches that state of centeredness, then I think those around him will see that, they'll experience that. And and as a group, they'll they'll rise as a group they'll rise to higher and higher levels. So we have been talking so far about a lot about kind of personal philosophy and virtues and and how that emanate, how one's leadership emanates from within and, and almost sets the tone, um, the permission, the, the energy for other people to be at their very best, which circles right back to your idea of actually being the servant leader. But I guess well, a, a couple of words you used earlier that might be slightly different, more almost practical, structural, systemic might be this idea of self-management and distributed leadership. Mm. So maybe we could just open that up for a Mm. little bit. And what made you bring that up? What was important to you about that? Or what is important to you about that? That goes back to um, serving and and goes back to um, unleashing the potential uh, of people. Um, distributed leadership is a concept which uh, goes beyond empowerment and allows people to uh, manage for themselves, allows people to make decisions, uh, allows people to uh, feel the complete support in order to operate uh, in the realm that they're operating in. And what that's shown, and and again, this is something that's been documented, is that self-management is a key pillar for organizations that are high-performing. And and it allows organizations to really what's called sense and respond. So to, uh, in the case of science, to sense any information that's emerging for the groups that are relevant and respond to it without the necessary cascade uh, and hierarchy to a centralized point in the organization. So it's distributing the leadership to enable groups to sense and respond, to operate um, at a higher level, uh, and and ultimately to to create higher and higher performance. I mean, it's a very holistic concept really Mm. distributed management Um, but as you quite rightly point out maybe at the core of it from a structural perspective is this move away from hierarchy uh, which is when well you could say you're almost inverting the pyramid even if you want the pyramid to be there at all or you end up with you know you remove that hierarchy the traditional hierarchy and you end up with this uh, a network of, of self-managed teams and that's something I know that you and I have worked on before but maybe you could give us some practical examples of of what you have done with that with teams that you've been working with. Yeah so um, when, um, when we've looked at this Um, we have looked at this from a conceptual perspective and from a practical perspective. From the conceptual perspective, as I've uh, talked through, the concept of self-management and uh, sensing and responding 
uh, elements and, and themes uh, in concept that seem to be uh, important to, to raise the, the potential uh, and unleash the potential in an organization. From a practical perspective, uh, the way we have looked at that is to uh, have teams uh, created and those teams were then uh, enabled and supported to make decisions, to um, respond to information, uh, to have a process where they can seek guidance and ultimate and consult uh, and ultimately make the decision themselves. And what we have seen in doing that is we have actually seen some practical benefits to that. And in the context of, for example, drug development, we've seen practical development, practical benefits uh, with respect to efficiency of projects advancing. Uh, we have seen some uh, practical benefits in terms of the quality of decision making. Um, and so there were some tangible benefits to creating these teams that had the support and the ability to rapidly make decisions uh, with this underlying principle of sensing and responding. Mm. And the, 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 the better quality of decision making, um, what do you think was the root cause that was enabled? I mean, obviously this is, as I say, quite a systemic thing. It's not just what often one thing you're putting in place. But what do you think was the root cause of allowing people to make better quality decisions? I think it, um, if I was to distill it, it's uh, down to uh, the reason that uh, those that are making the, the, the decisions are the closest to the information. Uh, those that are making the decisions have the nuances and the complexities at front of mind. And so that connection with the uh, area where they are needing to, to make the decisions, I think enables a higher quality of decision. And the analogy that's been given around this is how the human body works. When there is a um, cut in one part of the body, locally the system gets together and responds to that cut. And that's not a centralized process. And so in the same way, when groups are more connected to the area of uh, decisions that they need to make, then what tends to happen is that the quality of the decisions uh, are higher, provided that they have all of the information that are ne that's necessary to be considered. And that's what again would be important in an organization is to have the free flow of information available so that all of the nuances and complexities uh, and the streams of information can be considered by those groups in making the decision. Now in enabling all this to happen, what does this actually mean for you as a leader? How do you as a leader enable that or even potentially get in the way of that happening? Enabling that practically would mean um, ensuring a flow of information, as we, we just mentioned. Enabling that practically uh, means supporting those teams and being seen to support those teams. Enabling that practically means being available for guidance if that's 
necessary. Enabling that practically means letting go and truly allowing those decisions to be made by the teams despite any consequences. Um, because that's where I see a lot of fear arising when um, I talk about this or I hear people talk about this. The, uh, that actually what's most terrifying for the senior leadership is, my goodness, I'm going to have to really let go. I'm not, I don't have the level of control that I might be used to. What happens if it all goes wrong? I mean, what, what do you say to that? I say that that is a process. Um, letting go is a process that one again, would need to look inside themselves and go through a, an internal introspection um, to come out of the other side feeling comfortable to let go. Uh, letting go requires courage. Letting go requires self-confidence. Letting go requires, I think again, loud, uh, Lao Tzu puts it well uh, in his Tao Te Ching, where he has some incredible um, uh, pearls in that book, and I would I would classify that as a leadership book. And again, it's a book that talks a lot about introspection, uh, and he has a a line which uh, goes along the lines of. Accomplishments without acknowledgement is enduring. So letting go of any desire for acknowledgement, but realizing that's what is most enduring, is actually having the impact through letting go. And that's what remains. And that's what's more enduring than having a sense of acknowledgement um, by making the decisions. Well, I think on that note, that is a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for sharing all your very personal experiences and the philosophies and things that have inspired you in your leadership. Thanks so much, Namir. Thank you, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. We hope that you have enjoyed our conversation and remember that additional links to some of the material that was discussed in this episode can be found in the description. So let's end by bearing in mind that the true nature of leadership is well captured by Simon Sinek's quote that leadership is a responsibility. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. If you've enjoyed this episode of Coffee and Conversation Workplace Wisdom Unleashed, then please remember to subscribe to the podcast and share on your social media channels. Equally, if you would like to give us some feedback, suggest future guests, share your stories or find out more about leadership, team and organisational development, we would love to hear from you. Do contact us via our LinkedIn pages. These links can be found in the description associated with this episode. 
Next month, we will hear from Steve Taylor, who is joining us to share his stories and workplace wisdoms built up from his years as an experienced general manager and transformation director in the haulage and logistics business. Ready to unleash your workplace wisdoms? Well, what are you waiting for? <laughs>